Hello, this is Kevin Klickenberg. Thanks for signing up. Thanks for listening. This is a terrific uh, interview today with uh, Steve Muzan, uh, who, I've, who I find to be one of the more interesting uh, people in the field of uh, architecture and urban design. Uh, and we, we go a lot of different places that I think you'll enjoy. I do want to highlight uh, this. There are some audio issues uh, with uh, the interview. Uh, this is still uh, my uh, first couple of episodes, so I'm working through those issues. The good news is I've already figured out what went wrong on this episode, and I'll be able to correct those for future podcasts. Uh, but please uh, be patient with me, and I, uh, I appreciate you working through this and listening uh, anyway, because it's it's really a, a terrific interview, and uh, I'll certainly have Steve back again at a future date. With that, thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to the Messy City Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Klinkenberg. Today, we are fortunate to be joined by Steve Muzon. Uh, Steve is somebody I've known for a long time. He leads uh, a, he his own firm called uh, Muzon Design. Um, Steve, you've done so much over the years that it's kind of hard to encapsulate it all. Uh, I even actually took the step of going to your website to try to look up some bi- biographical information and summarize, but... Uh, you know, I just say, uh, uh, and you can add anything you want here. You're a lifelong practicing architect and urban designer. Uh, you've written multiple books. Um, you co-created the New Urban Guild. You are a bit of an obsessive photographer uh, and documenter of places and buildings. And you're a very active uh, social media and uh, new media advocate. Um, so I guess the question is, Steve, what haven't you done? You know, I'm uh, I'm working on that right now, and by that I mean that that there's some, uh, you know, with all the books that I've written, I don't know, dozen, fifteen, something like that over the years, depending on what all you count. Um, I think that the world is changing, and so what I'm trying to figure out now is is uh, what what is the next best thing for what used to be a typical publication, and and so um, that will be. What I haven't done, but what I'm going to be doing is once I figure it out, then I'll do it. <laughs> that, that's kind of a, that's, that's kind of my my mo is is uh, you know and and I put it this way and this this is our this is our actual um, I guess you call it our mission. But what we try to do, Wanda and I, is we try to find needs that aren't being yet met and figure out how to fill those needs because you know you don't the world doesn't need just one more architect or one more planner or one more whatever it is uh that that uh, any of us might be doing what it needs is some of these critical needs being met that people aren't even seeing them until someone uh tries, until someone actually puts uh you know connects the dots and puts it all together and and it says mm-hmm. here i can help with this and so that's that's where we um that's where we are. So we're, we're kind of always a moving target because what, what we were known for in, in 2005 is not what we're trying to figure out today, I guess you'd say. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I want to, uh, as we get later into it, I want to talk about new media and, and some of the ways that you've shifted over the years. Uh, first I want to make sure that people have an understanding of who you are and your background. Um, you know, it's interesting that, when I did a quick Google search, I thought you should know that uh, the address of your firm still comes up as Miami Beach. And I know that you're back in Tuscaloosa uh, and have been for, what, a couple of years now? And and Alabama is where you are from. 
Right. We actually, um, I've been doing design review for almost 20 years here at the University of Alabama. I'd fly in one day a month and do the reviews, go back home. And But in late uh, 2018, well, it's actually August, uh, the guy I work for here called up and said, Steve, how busy are you? And I said, well, what do you need? And uh, he said, well, our longtime university planner has retired, and we need someone to be the interim planner uh, until we can find a new permanent person. And and so we, we cut a deal, and, and I came up here. I, I, I was thinking that there is no way living in South Beach uh, like we did for 17 years that, that, that I would ever be able to live without my fix of urbanity. And, and so um, I negotiated to work one week on, one week off. And the week off, of course, I was back in Miami, and Wanda was still down there, uh, which, which made sense. I didn't want to you know, not, not see her. Mm-hmm. And, um, but uh, you know, that's four and a half years later, and we're still here. So, uh, and we actually sold our condo there. We had some concerns uh, with, with, uh, things happening on the beach where they'd kind of lost their nerve to do some of the things that needed to be done, uh, for the future of the city. And so we were already looking for another place. We just never dreamed it would be here in Tuscaloosa. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, we're, we're, um, I, I, I'm still not a, an employee of the university. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a consultant, but, um, this is our, uh, uh, this is our point of operations now. And it, it really is a fascinating little town to be in. So why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and, and ultimately went to college? Uh, you know, also from a personal standpoint, I'm curious a little bit about your education uh, as an architect and what that was like uh, as you went through that period. If you if you had the same experience that most architects have, where you, you really were educated uh, as a modern architect, uh, as a modernist, so to speak, uh, and and how that went for you as a, as a young adult. Well, you know, I... Um... Uh, interestingly enough, one day I got married after uh, my first year in, in uh, architecture school. And so she basically uh, went, she kind of audited an architecture degree, you might say. Uh, she was up there, uh, you know, uh, late at night in the studio helping me build models and stuff. She would go to all the juries and, and uh, ask a bunch of questions afterwards. And the thing that changed uh, my career as much as anything uh, in those early days <clears throat> was when she said one night we were we were in bed about to go to sleep and and she turned turned over to me and said steve why is it that you refuse to design anything that anyone else i love would love <laughs> i said what well, do i she said well yeah i said well how do you know she said well have you ever listened to non-architects talk about architecture hmm. i said no we're, we're told by our professors that we're supposed to educate the client she said well if you would ever stop and listen, you might actually learn some things you don't already know. And and so a big uh, a big chunk of my career for that thereafter has been all these decades since then. It's been trying to to uh, figure out what it is. Why is it that people will love certain things and not others? And 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 how can we how can we move the places we make uh, in the buildings we build? In, in the direction of places people love as opposed to things that are just simply transactions that we throw away as soon as we can. Did you have any uh, professors? Were there any outlier professors or mentor, mentor, excuse me, mentors in your younger years who uh, would have embraced that approach, who might have had a fondness for uh, traditional architecture or classical architecture? Did you, did you know anybody in that world? 
at that time? There were there were two professors in school, and there was one, uh, well, actually, two, three colleagues in school, but one in particular uh, that, uh, that comes to mind. Uh, one of the professors was Marvin Rosenman. He was head of the Department of Architecture, and he was he he would celebrate any alternative uh, inquest that um, that a student wanted to make. You know, there were other professors that were trying to indoctrinate you as a Mesian or whatever, you know, you know, or a Cabrusian. And um, uh, but Marv would uh, whatever people want to explore. He, he he really encouraged that. And then the other guy uh, was Dan Woodfin, and uh, he had a strong background in uh, Christopher Alexander in pattern language. And and so there were a lot of things in there that, you know, when you're talking about uh, a, a true living tradition of vernacular architecture that really is the stuff that people love by definition otherwise they wouldn't build it you know when the townspeople build the town they don't build stuff they hate you know um and you know i mean that's kind of a truism really or should be but um uh and so he was very helpful as well but the one student is a fellow named david rao who i, I believe you know mm-hmm. and david was always asking the questions that could not be answered uh in that time and, and ever since, as long as I've known him, uh, and, and he really, uh, he was really a mind expanding agent for, for a number of us, uh, there in school that, that, that weren't just accepting the company line, uh, of Corbmesian revival. Mm-hmm. So I, I know I'm jumping around a little bit here, but I'm curious now with your experience as a, a consultant at the university of Alabama, what are you, what do you see in the architecture schools, uh, there and in, in the state? And um, near the places you grew up and are familiar with, is it is it pretty much the typical architectural education that you see everywhere, or is there is there more impact from um, traditional architects? Actually, here uh, University of Alabama does not have the architecture school in the state. There, there okay. are actually uh, two of them: one at Tuskegee University, and the other uh, at Auburn University. And okay. uh, I I um, I'm more familiar. Uh, because I've gone there a couple of times and and uh, had more engagement with them with uh, with Auburn and they're they're with the exception of um, th- there were a couple of professors over the years that that, that have been uh, uh, real exceptions to the norm. But um, uh, I was down there a time or two as part of a jury and and uh, I. It it was more just a, a typical education from what I could see, which was the same as what I had. Uh, it was very similar. It felt very familiar to <laughs> to my education at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and uh, so that that was. Um, uh, and and then at um, at Mississippi State, which is like only ninety miles away, uh, the uh, Mississippi School of Architecture is there, and and when I was there in the uh 90s and was um uh i was i was uh interviewing students you know it was on on the pro day or whatever they called it um and the night before there was a reception for the professionals and the the assistant dean at that time uh he he was you know making conversation got around to me asked me what we did and all that and i mentioned or interest in the new urbanism. And I thought he was going to physically eject me from the building. <laughs> He's long since gone. And there's a, fe- a fellow named Fred Carl, uh, who was a great hero of mine that was heavily involved with the Mississippi renewal forum and the Katrina cottages and all this, that, that uh, Mississippi state now hosts 
the Fred Carl Small Town Center, which is which is doing a lot of really interesting things. Um, and it seems to me that the um, the whole direction of the architecture program is unlike a lot of places. Uh, the Mississippi State Architecture Program seems to have become a lot more open-minded uh, since those days. But back in that day, one little uh, quick story, mm-hmm. we went out for lunch and just decided we'd uh, walk and find a place to eat. We happened to walk towards uh, the town center. I didn't even know where that was at the time. Stumbled across this place called the Cotton District <laughs> that was, you know, it, it actually predated the urbanism. It was the urbanism beginning 10 years before Seaside began. And and so it's just a uh, kind of proto-neurobanism. And and so just stumbling across this fascinating uh, place. And then I got back uh, in the afternoon interviews. I was all excited and stuff. And, and I was asking all the, the students, what do you know about the Cotton District? Every single one of them said, the what? <laughs> they didn't know anything about it. It was a short walk from campus. And it was student housing. So at that time... The the apparently the leadership in the school at that time had totally shut down any discussion of what Dan Camp was doing at the Cotton District, and but like I say, the, the school there has taken a what appears to me to be a huge turn uh, in the years since in a really good direction. Yeah, that's 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 so interesting. And uh, first of all, I'd forgotten you were Ball State, which was actually believe it or not on my short list of schools when I was looking to go to college. Uh, an architecture school, but your story reminds me a little bit of when I was uh, an undergraduate at University of Kansas, and we uh, a group of us did a, a spring break uh, trip one year uh, to Panama City, uh, Florida, which is of course one of the big spring break destinations. So this was probably about uh, nineteen ninety one or ninety two, and sure. I I had already learned at that time and read a little bit about Seaside. Um, but most of our professors, uh, if they knew about it, were pretty dismissive. Um, so we actually, the group of us actually did the road trip, you know, one day did the very kind of nerdy architecture student thing and took the day off from hanging at Panama city beach and drove to seaside and walked around, which was, you know, it was still a really small place at that time. Um, but yeah, I had that experience of like, wow, what a remarkable thing. And, you know, there's this incredible thing that we're not really being taught in architecture school. Um, and, uh, it, it was, it was very eye-opening as a, as a young person. Um, I think it's, you know, I think it's really fascinating your conversation with Wanda too, because, uh, you know, I find that lay people, um, who don't know much about architecture or architecture education, as most people wouldn't, are really surprised when they hear what it's actually like. Yeah. Well, and you know, there's one other thing I should throw in here as well, uh, about, uh, early formative uh, influences. And this was on a, just a uh, half an hour phone call. Maybe it's an hour. I can't remember it. But one of the things that Marv Rosamond did at Ball State is he started something called lunch line where uh, any student who wanted to could come in and brown bag it. And we would, uh, we gathered around an old speaker phone, which literally looked like a a (laughs) speaker at a music event. And then it had a phone kind of, uh, the phone innards kind of uh, screwed into the side of it or whatever. And we would call some famous architect. And this particular day, it was Michael Graves. And near the end of the conversation, um, uh, there was a freshman that asked a typically freshman question. 
uh, he said, Mr. Graves, what is the secret of success in architecture? Oh, my goodness. He, he's going to just totally <laughs> blow him off and, and such. But Graves is always a gentleman. And he said four words that, that changed my career. And it was extraordinary singleness of purpose. Hmm. Now, had he said wealthy parents, good political connections, going to the right <laughs> church, uh, being a good golfer, being good looking or being charming or, or, or athletic or whatever – I had none of those things, but extraordinary singleness of purpose. I could just decide to have that. Yeah. And, and so that, that actually, uh, his, that, that actually was, was the key to, well, I'll put it this way. When, when, um, when we begin to finally find some time digging out from under a mountain of debt of building this house that was our ideal dream and it was self-sufficient homestead and all this uh and we had to finish on credit cards but when we we finally started to dig out of that by doing just a few little things like starting the catalog of the most loved places uh since that time based on his advice in in the years since 2003 when we moved to miami beach technically i'm still an architect uh but in those years since, which is now 20 years uh, since the move uh, this fall, um, I have not done anything that I was qualified to do. Everything I've done is things that I'm unqualified to do, but that nobody else is qualified to do either because it's stuff that had, hadn't existed until now. And, and so, but it's all based on that idea of having an extraordinary singleness of purpose to go out there. And in our case, find needs that aren't being met and try to fill them. So that, that's, that's kind of a weird little anecdote that, that, um, uh, but that I hope that might be helpful to someone else, uh, because it certainly was helpful to me. Well, I think that's a, it's a good segue to where I want to go next, which I think the, if I remember right, the first time we met was at a, a Seaside Institute forum in the early two thousands, um, in the seminars that Andreas and others used to and the Seaside Institute used to put together and lead, which really were remarkable uh, yes. sessions and a, and a great way to, to train uh, clients and potential clients and um, uh, other designers and others who were just interested in new urbanism. So uh, what what was it? You know, how did you find yourself uh, coming to that and coming to the new urbanism eventually? Well, you know, I had... Uh... There was an article in Architectural Record that came out in April of uh, uh, 1981, I believe it was, or it may have been April of 82. Yeah, it would, would have been April of 82 uh, about Seaside, the plan of Seaside. And up until that point, um, I had been really focused on, and this was before my work with Dan Woodfin, my, my thesis. He was my thesis advisor. But but I, I actually, um, the... Uh, the day after Thanksgiving, 1980, uh, we went to a, um, uh, we, we'd had too much turkey the day before. So we said, let's go walk. Well, where can we walk? Well, I grew up in sprawl, so you can't walk there. But <clears throat> as a child, uh, my father had taken us, uh, Susan and Hazel and I, to this uh, little hamlet just about 20 miles away called Mooresville, Alabama, because uh, he loved the place. You know, it was, it, it was a, a classic old hamlet that, that was really the first state capital. <clears throat> and I was in the middle of my third year in school uh, at the time. 
and and walking around Mooresville, photographing everything for like just absorbing the whole thing for two, three hours. I was asking myself, how did the old folks do this? Most of the people that, that settled in this place weren't even literate. So how could people that that couldn't even read or write build a better place than all the great professionals of our day have done? And again, uh, th- this was before Seaside uh, construction actually begun. Um, and I couldn't answer that question, but the, the bigger question was, how did they then pass this great wisdom that let them do better than the professionals of our day have done. You know, we've got, we now have computers, we've got power tools, we got, you know, all, all this stuff um, that we, uh, that, that, that how is that possible? But the greater mystery was how did they pass that down uh, to the next generation uh, with no known artifacts to show for it? You know, it wasn't like they, they had all these books that you can look up and say, this is exactly how we did. This is how a vernacular happens. You know, that had to wait uh, for Christopher Alexander. But the, I'm going to say this, and I'm no Einstein at all. But one thing I love that Einstein said, he said, I'm not that much smarter than other people. I just stick with problems longer. <laughs> and so I took the mystery of Mooresville home with me, kind of fed it and watered it and gave it a place to live. And it was 24 years later. Now, if somebody had been brilliant, they'd have discovered this in two weeks. Okay. But 24 years later, as he had a charrette, uh, for Lost Rabbit in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, we had the celebratory dinner at the end of it, and then all the design team. We were all bidding goodbye to each other. Uh, in in uh, someone asked Milton Grinfell the fateful words. They said, "Milton, how is it? Uh, why is it that you have uh, all these bell cast eaves in this part of the country? You know where it kicks out at the bottom." He said, "Well, you know, we do this because that that here, if your roof." is too steep in a hurricane wind it'll overturn if it's too shallow it'll fail an uplift so the sweet spot is 8 and 12 to 9 and 12 in that vicinity but if if uh, torrential rain comes off of that uh, it'll dig a trench in the yard um, whereas if you kick it out it comes off in more of a spray than a sheet uh, and, and, and that's how it works out uh, and, and so uh, I said wait what did he say he, he said we do this because that's it. That's it. That's the key of what I've been looking for for all of those years to try to figure it out. You know, because if you put the the the, uh, the rationale of the patterns into the patterns, then it's easy to pass that down to the next generation and for people to actually improve it so it can actually become a living tradition. So but but backtracking uh, then to the origins of Morrisville, then my graduation uh, two, three years later, uh, <clears throat> that the. At that point, when I got to Huntsville, Alabama, I looked, I, I interviewed in several places, but came back home because parents were still here. And, and at that time, our oldest son, Sam, had been born. And um, uh, so we, we basically returned home. But in, in Huntsville, everybody at that time, uh, other than one really great architect that moved off to Atlanta shortly thereafter, it was pretty much, you know, working for wages. You know, there was there was no interest in the urbanism. The architect I was working for, I, I told him about Seaside, and I thought he was going to fire me that day. You know, he <laughs> said I'd bulldoze the whole thing and 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 let let my Cadillac drive around the corners at thirty five miles an hour and put up condos that look like a Mondrian painting. You know, so that's what I was faced with. We there was no internet then, um, and I so I totally lost contra- contact with everyone. 
uh, that it had any contact with uh, at all. And it got to the point a few years later, I wondered if I might be the only person left that actually cared about designing places people love. Um, and then in the mid-90s, uh, I discovered a um, uh, the, well, what was then the, the IC, <clears throat> excuse me, ICA, the Institute of Classical Architecture. There was a conference in New York City. I went to that. It's like, wow, there's more of us. I found <laughs> my people, you know. <clears throat> and then shortly thereafter, uh, when Andres started doing the, the things at Seaside uh, that you mentioned, the conferences, I started going there. And that was really the beginning of my involvement, uh, direct involvement with the urbanism. And by that time, of course, the Internet was around. And, and then then you could create a lot of connections that way. Yeah. But but for a, for quite a long time, it was kind of like years in the wilderness, you might say, because yeah. I, I thought I was the only one. Let's speak a little bit more. Uh, I want to get to the original green here in a little bit, but let's talk a little bit about um, what you alluded to there with the living tradition. Uh, your story reminds me of, you know, one of uh, Andreas's quotes, uh, many quotes over the years that that stuck with me, but one in particular was that um, it was amateurs uh, who copied that built basically every place in the world that we really love. And it's the professionals of recent decades who have ruined our cities with their inventions. Uh, and um, I, I know that was something that I, I think really drove you to work on your living tradition series, which you're still working on. Um, you should talk a little bit about what, what that means. And when people talk about living traditions or just traditions, what, how, do you, how do you interpret that? Well, you know, there's two sides of tradition. One side and the one that, that people think of the most and that they think it's the only part of it uh, is traditional style. You know, you can talk about the vernacular style of a region, but it's not a, a true vernacular or living tradition at all. It's just simply a matter of style. And as a matter of fact, um, modernists rightly react poorly to the idea of having a style shoved down their throat. They want to be allowed to think. Uh, they want to be allowed to explore <clears throat> as, as they should be. Um, and so if it's a matter of a closed canon, effectively a style-based pattern book, and I've written quite a number of those back when I didn't know any better. I didn't know how to, to do some. Matter of fact, I remember being in a, <clears throat> excuse me, at a CNU with, uh, there was a, a, a panel of several of us. Uh, talking about pattern books, and, and one of them was Ray Gendros, who's kind of the grandfather of pattern books in the modern era. <clears throat> and I asked him partway through the discussion, I said, Ray, if someone picked up one of our pattern books in 50 years, how would, how would anything they build according to the pattern book then be any different from what people build according to the pattern book today? And, of course, the answer is it wouldn't be because it's a book of rules and you follow the rules, you get the same results. <clears throat> but then I asked, I said, what can we do to help architecture to live again? Is it has always lived? Is anyone with a, a copy of Bannister Fletcher, you know, the big book? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm going to get a sip of water. Sure. Um. <clears throat> Yeah, how can anybody with that with that book, and uh, actually looking over here to see if I see it, I've got it here somewhere, but wherever it is, <clears throat> um, who can see that architecture has always evolved, 
from from the beginning of civilization until we started to have this series of little revolutions instead of evolution at the beginning of modernism. How can how can we help architecture to live again to where it can actually start to learn from things today and and to improve things long known to work as opposed to saying let's throw it all out and and have my own artistic creation. <clears throat> and so that was that's been my my goal for a very long time. And then the the uh that discovery uh, a couple of years after that of uh you know, the four words of, of we do this because uh, being the, the kind of the operating system of, of uh, a true living tradition. Um, and that has changed everything since that time uh, for me, because it just opens up so many doors where you're allowed to think about things like an like a tradition <clears throat> as uh, an organic thing as opposed to a mechanical thing where you just read the book and you follow the rules you know, kind of the old RTFM thing. Uh, no, it's not that. It's it's <laughs> let architecture live, not RTFM. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then, at, um, at a point later on, uh, or while this was going on, you started working on um, your thesis about the original green. Um, so uh, I, I think if people have heard of you and know about you um, in in the larger world, they they probably associate you more with the original green more so than anything else. Um, what talk about, you know, for, for anybody who's not familiar, what is the original green? What, what's the sort of the, the short version of what it's all about and, and what led you to thinking about these, these issues? Well, the original green is, is what, um, what kept humanity, uh, alive really, uh, from from the the dawn of, of civilization or the dawn of humanity, uh, un, until really the beginning of the thermostat age, when we thought we could flip a switch and make everything okay, uh, you know, because of the machines. But before that, um, it it was the uh, assembled and improved wisdom of how to how to build and how to live in the places we built in such a way that things get better for us instead of us turning into ghosts and our town turning into a ghost town. And, and so, um, and what I decided to do, because I've been a strong believer in a lot of the things that the urbanists have done and continue to do. Um, so I realized at the very beginning when, when I was trying to assemble answers to that question in a systemic, systematic way, I said, you know, I could make this thing, an apology for the new urbanism, but I refuse to do that. I, I need to step back and think really kind of systematically about what is it that, that creates a sustainable place and then sustainable buildings within that sustainable place. Uh, and, and so I asked myself, well, what's, let's talk about places. What's the number one thing about a place that if it isn't there, you can't live there. And the number one thing is, if you can't eat there, you won't live there. You, you won't last very long at all. You might last, depending on how much accumulated uh, stored energy you have. Uh, <laughs> uh, you might last for a few months. Uh, if, if you're pretty uh, fit and, and slim, you might last for a few weeks. But anyhow, uh, of course, today we, we can, again, the machine allows us to ship in uh, food from all around the world. But 
in a long emergency, uh, as Jim Kunstler might say, um, you need to be able to look out onto the fields and onto the waters from which most of your food comes. Uh, otherwise, uh, life can't be sustained in the place. Uh, and, and so that seemed to me to be the first foundation of, uh, of a, st- a sustainable place. And, and then, um, then you got to say, well, can I get around uh, to my daily needs uh, in a self-propelled way, either either walking or cycling? Because again, it, it's it's saying, well, here's the thing: if in order to live in a place, if you have to be connected with pipes and wires to resources half half a world away or whatever, then that place isn't a living place. It's like its own its own life support, hmm. you know, because it's all got all the pipes and wires stuck into it, hmm. and and so you, you got to be able to get around. So it's got to be accessible so you can get around easily to what you need without total dependence upon auto domination. Um, and then it needs to, you need to be able to get those services. You know, you don't want to just walk around in circles for, for exercise. You need to be able to get daily necessities. Uh, the two of those together, what they're now calling the 15 minute city, uh, you know, can you get around all your daily needs in, in just a few minutes? And, and, uh, uh, and then the, the, the toughest question that people don't want to talk about uh, is what about those inevitably less secure times in every city's future? If you if you cannot secure the most vulnerable parts of the urbanism, which are things like the middle of the block and so forth, uh, where people can sneak in your back door or whatever, and, and uh, <clears throat> if you can't uh, secure it more than it is today when everything is open, while still allowing people to walk up and down the streets, because if you if you shut off entire uh, segments of the city, uh, then then that's that's what a ghetto basically is. In in uh, uh, you know, and so that those there are tough questions to ask and to answer there, but it's a conversation we have to have because every uh, every city and every place in the city goes through inevitable cycles of more secure and less secure. So those four seem to me. Uh, to be to, to be nourishable and accessible and serviceable and securable, the four most important uh, foundations of a sustainable place. And then I got to thinking about, on the architectural side, what is the most important thing? And, you know, most everybody would say high energy efficiency. Uh, and, and, but really, if you think about it, if a building can't be loved, it won't last. You know, as soon as the mortgage is paid off, we're going to get rid of it and, and do something mm-hmm. else. Uh, and unfortunately, um, we've grown so so accustomed uh, to unlovable buildings that, you know, we built an entire culture of throwaway buildings where, you know, as soon as they're paid for, they're done. They're toast because uh, they're regarded not as something to cherish, but but just kind of as a cheap tool uh, until its usefulness is over with. And, and so... That seemed to me to be like the very first foundation. And then if it is uh, lovable, is it durable enough to carry that lovability long into an uncertain future? Because if it's not, you know, if it's lovable but falls down next week, then I hope you took pictures, you know, <laughs> because that's all you'll have left. Uh, <clears throat> and if it is lovable uh, and durable, then is it adaptable enough to be many different things over time? One of the one of the worst um, example or best examples, actually, of um, of unsustainability 
uh, is the old maxim of form follows function. Because if a building is so tightly tied to a single function, when that function uh, is ended, the building is useless. You know, you got to tear it down and, and replace it with something else. And, you know, when you look at people today, and, and, and um, uh, I think they say today that a, a graduating student will probably uh, do, what is it, four or five different things over the course of their mm-hmm. lives, not just what they went to school for. And uh, two or three or four of those things at graduation are disciplines that will not even, that don't even exist yet. So they'll be doing things that hadn't been invented yet uh, before they retire. So if life is changing that quickly, then an unadaptable building is guaranteed to be obsolete very quickly. Whereas one that can be, that is good architecture, that's loved and durable and could be many different things, that it may last for, for centuries. It could be as uh, uh, Clay Chapman talks about, a, a millennium building, you know, that right. is here in a, a thousand years. Right. And then... If a building is lovable and durable and adaptable, but it's not frugal, then it's one of the worst things as well, because people join arms in front of the bulldozers and say, oh, no, you don't, you know, <laughs> because they, they love the place. And, <clears throat> but even if it is an energy hog, you know, and, and so that, uh, so it needs to really be all four. Now, the interesting thing is those were the eight foundations uh, that existed in in my mind when uh, when the book uh, was published back in what was it uh, 2010 and um, uh, in the um, uh, but I, I came to realize in the process of doing a living the book the second edition of the book a living tradition architecture of the Bahamas uh, I realized that I was missing an entire category uh, of 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 sustainability and that is if you think about <clears throat> Rome which was the the uh, the greatest capital of the ancient world uh, had many buildings in it that were sustainable, some of which still exist today, two thousand years later. But uh, by the middle centuries of of the medieval era, it had been uh, reduced to a city of I've, I've been told it it its low point was somewhere around ten thousand people, and and that and the garbage had piled up so high <laughs> that I've seen. I've seen pictures of women who were stringing clotheslines between the cap, uh, the capitals uh, of the the pantheon, you know, of of the front portico, because the garbage was up so high that that it hmm. that the new street level uh, was up up close to the capitals, and and so uh, the so you can have a sustainable place with sustainable buildings within it, but if the society within that place is not sustainable then it may still fall into ruin and become a, a ghost town or close to it um, as, as Rome even did, uh, even though it was, the, like I say, the, the, uh, uh, the capital of the ancient world really for, uh, for centuries. And, and so when I got to thinking about the thing, and again, stepping back, trying not to be an apologist for anyone, uh, <clears throat> you know, the new urbanism or, or, or whatever. So what, what are the, the four keys today uh, of of a uh, uh, a sustainable society, and I thought we're really today the very first one has got to be education because you know if someone comes to a new town uh, and they have uh, children, then the first thing they ask was where's the best school districts? You know they they don't want their kids to to get a poor education because they know how that limits them throughout life. Uh, 
And then uh, the second foundation in my mind is is the economy, and specifically uh, the economy not just as a capture of outpost mm-hmm. of multinational corporations, but an economy that's actually uh, building ideas and building stuff from their people in their place. Um, and, and, and so that's, uh, that's got to be one, too. And then uh, the third would be culture and not just, uh, again, the ability to capture the big show that traveled around the country on a tour. Uh, but what kind of culture are you building locally uh, in terms of not just the music, uh, but the few, food, but the art and, you know, all of these different aspects of culture that what are you cultivating in your place? And then today uh, in this, this has got to be a new one, because when people were when my grandparents were living on the farm, this was a non-issue because it was a part of your daily life. But the fourth foundation seems to me. Uh, to be wellness. In other words, how much does your place foster wellness for people to actually, just by living there, you know, not by going and buying a service in a building from a a spa or a therapist or whatever, but just by living in the place, how much does it foster opportunities for wellness? Uh, And again, these four things, unlike the four foundations of both places and of buildings, which have been fairly steady over time, these four of of uh, society, actually, I, I think they, they change places and some of them even fall off the charts. Like I say, the wellness one was not even on the charts right. uh, in, in 1940, you know, mm-hmm. because so, uh, you know, everybody working on the farms, that, that was that was their exercise, you know. Right. And right. so <clears throat> anyhow, that, that's so at this point in time, I feel like this actually those 12 uh, uh foundations of sustainability and the one thing i should mention about frugality going back to the buildings there is an idea out there that i called gizmo green mm-hmm. which is the proposition that with better equipment uh and better materials we can achieve sustainability by all means let us have uh better materials and more efficient equipment you know why would you want less efficient equipment you know um if i have to have equipment if the building can't uh, naturally condition itself, uh, you know, on most days of the year, then, then, you know, if you're building in the Arctic or whatever, uh, it won't. So you, you don't want to die. You don't want to freeze to death. So by all means have efficient equipment there and, and even in other places where you, uh, where you need, uh, need equipment. But to think that that is the entire proposition of sustainability and ignore everything else, is really missing the big picture. And, and so, uh, that's, uh, so Gizmo Green does play a role. It's just a relatively small role. And as a matter of fact, I would suggest to you that all of these moves towards smarter this and smarter that uh, are all a part of Gizmo Green. And But in reality, the things that are about the built environment that are prefaced with the word smart are really designed to make the human stupid. Yeah, <laughs> you know it, it. It's uh, it was there was a movie called Idiocracy a few years ago that 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 was not the whole story of Idiocracy, but that was a part of it, of uh, of let the machines think for you. And of course, now with what is it, Chat GPT or whatever, yeah. uh, I'm wondering if that's the next phase of the Idiocracy moving in to think for us. So uh, yeah, either, I, I don't know. Anyhow, but that, that that's a tension. Sorry. Yeah, either that or, or ultimate uh, path to become like the movie Wally. Uh, where we just kind of sit, you know, and everything yes. is given to us. Um, 
So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I, you know, one of the things that I really think about a lot, uh, Steve, when I when I think about the original green, just at the, just from the aspect of uh, of architecture, uh, the the, uh, the first house that I uh, ever per- purchased um, uh, and lived in um, was actually a triplex that was built um, in the very early part of the 20th century. Uh, it was actually built as a house. Uh, and then carved up into three units uh, in the depression, one on each floor. Uh, so I, I lived on the second floor and then rented out the other two floors. Um, the, the house did not have central air conditioning, like, you know, because of course it, in that era, they didn't have central air and uh, the heat was all radiator heat, hot water heat. Um, and so whatever air conditioning was provided was provided through window uh, air conditioners. Um what I found most interesting and fascinating about living in that house was, uh, again, I was on the second floor is what it, I had good cross ventilation and, um, that, uh, that house was very, very comfortable inside up to about, you know, easily 90 degrees, uh, in the heat of the summer, it got over 90. And then I, that I really felt like I need, I had to turn on the window units, but up, up to 90, uh, I almost always had good enough cross ventilation and high enough ceilings that it was very comfortable to live in. Um, and that was fascinating to me to think about because that was all very low tech, uh, obviously. Uh, so that kind of meet the definition of frugal and it could, it couldn't help but trigger in my mind that if, uh, if I were following, for example, the contemporary standards for what to do, how to heat and cool that building, um, the answer uh, or recommendation would be, you know, a very high efficiency, um, you know, contained unit, um, a very expensive unit, which would require a lot of uh, regular maintenance and everything else, uh, and really trying to seal the house up as much as possible. So I often felt like, you know, a lot of what it, the interpretation or I got out of the original green, it was kind of a, a really elegant response to uh, the lead system, which came into effect in the 2000s and really took over the building professions. And I, I wonder about, you know, how much of that was in your mind in, in sort of thinking about the various lead uh, strategies and, and trying to get people to think about it a different way. You know, lead is a, um, uh, I've always considered myself a, a friendly adversary to the U.S. Green Building Council because of the fact I actually served on one of the committees for having to do with place for uh, what a year and a half or something like that. It was a, it was a while, um, and and uh, the original green is is clearly in my mind a counterpoint to lead. Uh, it's saying okay, what you do is important, but it's it's important in a very small uh, uh, cell of the matrix, you know, as opposed to the whole thing. Um, and, and actually, uh, to your example of, of, uh, you know, being, uh, comfortable up until a certain temperature, we actually did down in, uh, down in Belize at a place called Mahogany Bay Village. Uh, we did, uh, uh, well, the whole place was done without a stitch of turf, turf grass on the, on the site, without a stitch of drywall on the walls, um. And we had the, the little uh, through-the-wall units, but uh, because of the fact that we had the um, we had a reflective uh, ceiling, or reflective roofing, excuse me, uh, and and then uh, 
there were there were high ceilings that that the whole house could uh or each of the houses could could open up and breathe at night you know get the sea breeze coming through and so you cool off nicely and and I've actually been down there in quite a number of days and nights and you could if you close up the louvers by uh by about nine or ten in the morning uh something like that um then uh, because it's reflective roofing i have been there in days that it is um uh that it's a hundred degrees outside that this is in the tropics you know it, it's uh, south of cuba by, by a good little bit and and i have had the um uh, I cut the ceiling fan on around 1130 or 12, kind of stir the air up because with the ceiling fan, you can be comfortable 10 degrees warmer than you would be uh, if it were, uh, you know, if it were a, a, a still air. And and so uh, the only time I've ever had to cut on the little through the wall unit was one night that one and I were there and it had uh, it had rained all night. And so we couldn't open up the louvers to let it breathe. And, and so because they were closed and so it was about 10 degrees warmer when morning came uh, on the inside, then that meant that later on that day, we actually had to cut the AC on. But working in Miami Beach for 17 years, I, I have literally many times in, uh, uh, in South Beach uh, in, in July, yeah, I have opened up the windows, cut on the ceiling fan and been perfectly comfortable in the city where the basketball team is named the heat. Okay. <laughs> and I've had people come down from other parts of the country, uh, mainly in the South where they're used to having air conditioning all the time where you can't exist without it, you know, or, or so we've told ourselves and they've come down, uh, and we'll be out in the side garden or walking down to Lincoln road or whatever, uh, or ocean drive. And they're just sitting there suffering and, we have a saying in North Alabama. I don't know why we say it because this doesn't exist, but we say they're sweating like a pig. Of course, <laughs> as we know, pigs don't sweat. They, that's why they get in the mud and wall around because they, that's, that's their way of cooling off. And uh, meanwhile, I'm sitting there and I'm totally comfortable because we spend enough time going around to our daily needs on foot or Wanda on her bike that, that we got totally acclimated. We moved down there in the fall. And got totally acclimated uh, during what they call winter, which just means when when nobody has their AC on, you know, because <laughs> you don't need it. Uh, and and so I can accurately say that there was never a time in South Beach that that I was ever outside and in the shade and in a breeze and ever uncomfortable. I just never yeah. was. Yeah. You know, seventeen years. Yeah. So you know that that's just really kind of key that these all these things are supposed to be impossible. Well, they are if we're so fragile because we're we're in air conditioning all the time. We're driving all the time. Uh, hence, we, we gain weight. You know, all these things that happen as a result of being uh, the children of the machines, if you will, um, that that uh, but that's great fragility. And, and uh, so one of the things we learned so much about down there was was uh, uh, how to be. Uh, you know, resilient uh, and adaptable. And that, that changes your life. It really does. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that really strikes me uh, about all this, about really so much of what you did uh, in the original green, whether you're talking about a place uh, or a building or, you know, or community, um, there's a lot of great techniques in there that just normal average people can actually take on themselves and do. 
Uh, and so it, it's great actionable advice uh, for anybody. You don't have to be a professional uh, in any field to, to do it and to, to have a healthier building, to have a more energy efficient building, to have a better place, a better community. Um, and that's really, again, that's something to me that really stands in contrast to the very highly technical, uh, professionalized approach, uh, you know, really epitomized by LEAD, but also common in, in a lot of our uh, profession and, and certainly in the smart in the smart city movement and the, the smart whatever movement that uh, uh, that you uh, referenced earlier. So um, I, I, I'm curious about, you know, when you were writing that, was that was that part of the thought process also is to think about just like how somebody who's a non-professional, non-architect might take a, what they might take away from from that work? Oh, absolutely. That goes back to that that first night when Wanda asked the question that changed my career. Uh, about, you know, do you ever listen to the regular people? And and so, you know, my thought long was since then, or it's long been, or it's forever been since then, of if I can't speak in a way that anyone on the street can understand, I'm probably going to have a very small audience and so do very little good. And, and so... Uh, you know, the real goal has always been to to be able to put things out that can spread on their own long after we are gone. Um, you know, th- there there are proverbs, uh, both biblical proverbs and many other proverbs, you know, Aesop's fables and all this, <clears throat> that some of which date back uh, two and a half, three thousand years that are still around because they were distilled down enough to be. Uh, to be something that can take on a life of its own spread. You know, like the Emancipation Proclamation was what? I think it can be said in like six tweets, something like that. Um, and and it was a hundred and something words, I forget. Uh, but but anyhow, um, it lasted two, three minutes. Do you know there was another guy speaking that day uh, after Abraham Lincoln? He mm-hmm. droned on for two and a half hours. And no, not only does nobody have any idea what he said, they don't even know who he was. They didn't even know he existed, quite frankly. Uh, if you ask people today, who else spoke that day? They said, well, it's Abraham Lincoln. No, who else? I don't know. You know, and, and so, um, so distillation is a, is a key to me to distill things down to a very simple way to where, where they can spread. As a matter of fact, if you can't distill them down, you probably don't understand the idea well enough yet, mm-hmm. you know? So for me, and I, I'm going to throw something in on on, uh, on new media, and I know there's a lot of controversy about this today, but Twitter has been a great tool for me because it forces you to have to distill things down uh, in a way that, that is easy to be understood, uh, you know, because it's a character limit. I understand it may be going up soon, but that's a different story. Uh, but so to me, that it, that has been a great tool. Um, and and actually, you know, that my very first speaking gig was at the beginning of Gorn's Bluff uh, in uh, uh, in North Alabama. And Nathan Norris, our friend, uh, I was 10 minutes into it, and he gave me the hook. He said, <laughs> no, no, that's enough, that's enough. Uh, because he said you were speaking in such complex ways that, that nobody, that their eyes were glazing over. You know, so <laughs> since then, it, 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 it literally has been a mission for me to try to distill things down to where, where they can be understandable to spread. So yeah. anyhow, that 
No, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, two things come to mind. Uh, one is, um, you know, that work of distilling things down to the average person really was ne- never something we were sort of given much appreciation for as young people when we were educated. But those architects and designers who have learned how to do that have had remarkable success. You know, I think about uh, Sarah Suzanka and her not so big house books, uh, for example, uh, even, you know, Bob Stern and others who've, who've done a really great job. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, what we can finish here by talking a little bit more about new media uh, and social media. So uh, one thing that I, I know and really appreciate about you is you've always been interested to kind of embrace new ways to communicate uh, really much more so than, than even a lot of our friends and, and colleagues. Um, what is it that uh, has pushed you into uh, just new media environments and uh, whether that's Twitter now or uh, other things that blogging or other things that we've looked at in the past. Well, there's a couple of things. One, it always seemed to me to be a great tragedy that the high-level discourse of the new urbanism has always happened behind uh, the the tall garden walls of private listservs, and mm-hmm. so you have all this great discussion that never gets out. As a matter of fact, some people on the listservs would be very very offended if you were to take something they said there and put it out. You know, you, you can't put it out with attribution. Otherwise, you know, that's a problem. Um, and so it's like, it's like this wisdom that is put out that very few people over here likely will not have a long shelf life because there's no shelf to set it on. It's kind of almost spoken into the air and then, then it's gone. I mean, there's still emails, but but still, that those eventually something happens and a hard disk dies or something like that. So, so I've tried to be a person that will distill and put out the ideas uh, as best I can, uh, so that so that they have a longer shelf life and and uh, uh, and so they can do good uh, even after we're gone. That that really is one of my great hopes is that is to be able to to be a helper in having good ideas last longer. And, and, uh, uh, and so, but here's the other thing, uh, the original green book, um, when I started writing it, it was on the original green blog, which started up in, mm-hmm. in 2008, so a couple years earlier. <clears throat> and, and back in those days, a lot of people would comment on blog posts. Now they don't do so, so much, but, uh, at least in my experience, they don't, but, but, um, uh, that became a much better book because of actually just as most of the genes in your body are not human genes, they're, they're, you know, human genes in your body are about 1% of the total gene pool. The rest of them are in the, the, uh, the biome, uh, and in the, uh, what is it called? The microphages, I believe. And, and, and those are actually very, very ancient genes. But anyhow, so in, in like manner to that, most of the good ideas in the original green book were not my ideas, but I would put out an idea kind of as Andreas calls it red meat, uh, you know, and, and then see what, see what comes. And so, so most of the ideas that were responses to stuff I put out really kind of expanded my thinking that had I just focused on staying in my own little corner, you know, it would have been, uh, the book would have been much 
uh, poor uh, idea-wise and, and uh, much less helpful. And, and so that's the other motivation, not only getting the great ideas out there that I hear other people talk about, but helping to refine my own work by, by engaging other folks and opening up. And I think it's incredibly important to say to, to yourself that it is my purpose to put out half-baked, unfinished ideas because if you do the old corporate way and wait until you have the grand product reveal until you think it's perfect, <clears throat> then, you know, what are you going to say about that? But yeah. if it obviously needs help, if you say, well, there's a core of a great idea, but man, you need to think about this part because you haven't even considered that yet. You know, then, then if you put them out in that state, then you're almost kind of like crowdsourcing yeah. help. Because people will jump in then if they see it being imperfect, but compelling. Yeah. You know, it's almost like a, an infant or a young child, you know, they're very weak. Uh, we fall in love with them. And so we do things to help them along the way. So it's kind of like that. Yeah. And I, I, I find with my own uh, usage on social media that, you know, probably the majority of what I do is just something that's partially baked that I'm just putting out there and it just try to see if there's any kind of reaction positive or, or negative to it. And, and that has actually incredible value in that because you do, you do get a reaction and feedback. And uh, I, I think probably too many people focus on uh, the idea of those outlets being a place to argue or discuss and have a back and forth, which they're not good at. You know, it's just not a productive way to spend your time at all. And you'll probably make yourself crazy pretty quickly if that's what you use it for. Mm -hmm. uh, but as a way to test ideas, to put something out there uh, and see who it connects with and, and, uh, and who it doesn't, um, they can be really useful. Um, I have, you know, I met, we mentioned this on the, on the new urban guild listserv, uh, which is one of those private listservs, but, um, you know, I have really appreciated how you've been using Twitter, especially in the last year uh, or so. Why don't you talk, uh, just for a minute about what, uh, what has prompted you to, uh, take a different approach on Twitter and, and how that's gone for you. You know, what I've, what I've done in the last, um, little over a year is I've, I've noticed how that the the tweets that actually get a lot more traffic are not just the ones where someone is putting out a proverb, if you will, or just an idea, but it's the ones that actually have a compelling image that they're saying something about them. And I've been f photographing uh, great places for oh my for for decades now, and and so I really it was back during 2020 that that I had some time on my hands and and. Uh, uh, so I started going through and trying to catalog, uh, what, what to, to organize some of my photos in different ways. And then I said, what if I took like all the four stars and five stars, you know, I had this five star rating system and, and what if I started saying, what is the story behind this image? And then put the image out with the story as a tweet. And then that really started to pick up all kinds of, uh, uh, traffic and, and just in the last uh, six to eight months, uh, well, dating back to mid-year last year, yeah, I guess it is somewhere in that vicinity. Um, I realized that if you, well, first of all, if you put out an entire stream of tweets all at once, that's too much to digest. And and uh, so, uh, but for me to properly tag a um, 
an image with all the keywords that it needs for searching and then to be able to say what is the compelling story of this and then write the story <clears throat> you know that that can be uh 10 minutes or so to do that or maybe even 15 sometimes uh and and so but what you can do is if you have a tweet then there's a place where it says add another tweet so you add that other tweet and it becomes part of the thread but it's mm-hmm. not coming out in a fire hose it's coming out in little dribbles that people can say oh that's good. And then sometimes I have some of these now that I've, I've discovered that some of them are three or four months long and people still on things I post today are going back and reading the whole thing. Yeah. I've got uh, one that is called the downtown top 10. It's the top 10 things to do if you want to help your downtown recover. Uh, none of which are the normal advice. In other words, it's all stuff that people should have thought about already. And I've been trying to put out, but, but, uh, but so those are some of the recent evolutions. What I find now, is that that uh, some of those may un- end up being assemblable into whatever the next form of the book looks like that I'm trying to figure out right now. It's a, how can I make sense of starting with little bites and then you put them together into a meal and then you put them together into a feast. Um, <clears throat> you know that that um, and I don't know exactly where that's going yet, but that's one of those things of trying to find needs that aren't being met and fill those needs. Yeah, I think that's uh I think that's great advice. Um I've tried to do a bit of the same too, but haven't done it with the regularity you have and uh, it's a great way for all of us in our very small insular uh world to try to reach uh, a much much broader audience uh to hopefully open some eyes and challenge some thinking and also have our thinking be challenged. Uh, by others, because we certainly have our dogmas that need to be challenged too. Um, Steve, this has been this has been really great. Uh, we'll have to find a time uh, in the future to do it again uh, at I'd some point. To. Yeah. Um, uh, before we go, uh, I want to I want to ask you. So this is the Messy City podcast. That's something I write about. Uh, that's what uh, my site and blog uh, is titled. Um, I like to think about messy cities as places that are more sort of organic and informal uh, or have grown uh, incrementally over years. When you think about that, what do you have a do you have a place that immediately comes to mind that you love that you think people should know about? You know, of the of everything that would would qualify for that term, I think that the place that would wear that term most proudly would would have to be New Orleans. Uh, and, and there's so many things you can see there that, that if start out literally incrementally or in a tactical fashion that, that then grow into things that, that, uh, uh, that can then be loved and preserved for, uh, for centuries. And, 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 uh, you know, nothing about that place is perfect. It, it, it's messy at every turn, uh, but it's so endearing, you know, you, you just yeah. have to fall in love with the place. Uh, matter of fact, we were just down there, uh, for my birthday at the end of December and, you know, I love it every time. And it, it, it just, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that I can't think of a better place that would qualify, uh, you know, for the term messy city, but endearing city, uh, is yeah. New Orleans. Yeah. Arguably the, the greatest city in America. Absolutely love it. Steve, where, where can uh, people find you if they want to, if they want to fi- search you out? <clears throat> really these days, um, the uh, our, uh, we're working towards kind of getting everything on originalgreen.org. Uh, we I used to have a whole bunch of sites, but I'm trying to 
be be more lean about that and just say the most important things uh, in 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 one place as opposed to having stuff scattered all over. Great, great. And your Twitter handle is what? It's just Steve Muzan. It's just right. uh, it's just me with an app in front. All right, perfect. All right, Steve. Thanks so much. Uh, we'll talk to you again. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.